So we're in Leviticus, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Five readings. Leviticus 1, 1 to 9. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar And arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." We're turning over to chapter 10 now. Leviticus chapter 10 and the first four verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael, And Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. Over the page to chapter 11 now, and the first eight verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the card, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the card or part the hoof, you shall not eat these, the camel, because it chews the card but does not part the hoof is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part 
the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hair, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. And now chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now finally, chapter 19, verses 1 to 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This is the word of the Lord. What's your deepest need? A few weeks ago, Hugh mentioned Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Anyone familiar with that? A few educators in the room. It's also known as Maslow's pyramid of needs. It looks like this. If you're unfamiliar with it, it was developed by an American psychologist named Abraham Maslow in 1943. And he came up with this because he was on a quest to discover the meaning of life. And he believed that the field of psychology would help him in his quest. The idea behind the pyramid is that the most basic physical needs that we need to to have met form the foundation. So you have the the physiological, meaning physical, so taking care of our bodies, making sure we have enough to eat, that kind of thing. And then on top of that, safety. So those two layers refer to our our physical needs. They must be met. But those aren't our only needs, he says. The, The next ones are what perhaps you might call spiritual needs. Relationships and love, a sense of belonging, a sense of self esteem in yourself, and then ultimately, self actualization at the top. That being the, the pinnacle, the, the most important, most fulfilling, the purpose of life, if you like. 
Now, you may not know the term self-actualization, but it's a popular one these days, and even more popular than the term is the idea. You see, self-actualization is all about fulfilling your potential. It's all about being the best that you can be. Now, I'm sure that sounds familiar. You see, you don't have to look very far in our culture to hear that message. To hear, perhaps not in those terms, or in these terms, that that is the purpose of life. That that is your deepest need. Rachel Zegler, who is cast as Snow White in the latest Disney live-action cash grab, uh, sorry, uh, uh, remake, remake, she said of her character, uh, you know, Snow White was made in 1937, so it's not 1937, so she's, she's not going to be saved by the prince, she's not going to be dreaming about true love, she's going to be dreaming about, get this, Becoming the leader she knows she can be. That is the pinnacle of Maslow's Pyramid, ladies and gentlemen. Which means in Disney's new Snow White, uh, she will have apparently found the meaning of life. By becoming the leader she knows she can be, she will have met her deepest need. Now, Maslow's hierarchy is a solution that makes sense if you assume that there isn't a God who made you and all things. But if there really is, if there really is a God who made you, who made all things with a purpose, if you want to find the meaning of life, if you want to know what your deepest need is, then you need to hear what he says about that. And so we turn to his word in the Bible. Now, in the main, the whole Bible is all about this. But this morning and over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at it particularly through the book of Leviticus. Now, this morning, I hope to give us an overview of the book so that as we hear it preached in more depth over the coming weeks, as we look more specifically at certain chapters, we have this bigger picture of what Leviticus is all about in our minds. And what does Leviticus tell us about our greatest need? It is, as our heading for this morning and for this series says, about how God's people enter God's presence. How God's people enter God's presence. And we're going to consider that through three headings this morning. Firstly, our big problem. Secondly, God's solution for Israel. And thirdly, God's solution for us. As I said, uh, we're going to be moving around different passages, so feel free to have Leviticus open in your book, but we will also have the verses on the screen. Let's start at the very beginning. Our big problem. Notice how uh, this question about our deepest need, it exists. Why? Because there is a lack. You think about it. If you're full, you don't keep eating. Wait, what? (laughs) Sorry, is that a thing, says some of the guys? You're not supposed to. You see, a need, by its very definition, it exists because something that is required is missing. It's not there. 
And so the Bible tells us what is missing. Now, kids, does anyone know what the first chapter of the Bible is all about? Genesis 1. God creating the world. That's right. He creates everything. And then in chapter 2, we read about how he makes human beings in his image. And then he places them in a perfect garden called the Garden of Eden. Great name. Where Adam and Eve, they lack nothing. They have all that they need including being in God's presence. But then tragically, as we read in chapter 3, Eve listened to the serpent and she disobeyed God's commandment not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam did the same. And what happened? Well, we read in verse 8 of chapter 3 that they hid themselves from the Lord's presence. They were ashamed of being in his presence. And ultimately, as we read in verse 24, what the consequence of their actions is that they are cast out. They are driven out of the Garden of Eden. The most devastating consequence of our sin is our being cast out of God's presence. Our sin separates us from him. Now, this has been all of humanity's problems since the beginning. We are all born into it. Adam's sin has been passed down to all of us, to every generation, to every person in every place. And we are all outside the Garden of Eden. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are exploring Christianity. I'm so glad that you are. As Christians, we recognize that this is our deepest need. It is the need for unholy people, rebellious, sinful people to be able to enter the presence of a holy God. Have you considered that before? I encourage you to keep listening and observing this morning how that can be possible. And I'd love to talk to you about it more afterwards. Our sin, it separates us from God. It leaves us in the wilderness, cast out of the garden. And if the Bible finished at the end of Genesis 3, then there would be no points 2 and 3 in this morning's sermon. All we would be left left with is our big problem. That's it. But even within Genesis 3 itself, there is a seed of a solution, a promise of redemption. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible is God's revelation of how that promise, step by step over many, many events and thousands of years, is unfolded until it reaches its climax in the coming of the head crusher. And in a nutshell, that is what God's word is all about. It is all about how God's people can enter into God's presence. 
The next major step in this unfolding drama of history is when God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur and promises that he will make his offspring into a people that will bless all peoples of the earth. And one of the promises is bringing them into the promised land of Canaan. But if you fast forward to the end of the book of Genesis, we have a problem. I don't know if anyone knows what the last sentence of the book of Genesis is. It's this, Genesis 50 verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin. Where? In Egypt. Not the promised land. Abraham's great-great-grandson is buried in a foreign land with the rest of his family needing to be there in order to live. That's not looking like God is bringing about the promise that he gave. And there's a reason it ends this way. You see, we're supposed to read that ending at the end of the book of Genesis and think, surely that can't be the end. The people of Israel aren't in the promised land. How is God going to resolve the problem of his people not being in his presence? And brothers and sisters, if there was ever a time in your life where it seems like God has failed you, Remember that this story is not over. His full redemption is yet to come and his promises are sure. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, even if that good isn't seen by us in this life. Death is not the end. Now, redemption was certainly to come for the people of Israel, and it would be the most dramatic in their history. And that's what the book of Exodus is all about, and what we considered these last couple of Lord's Days together, as we heard the sermons uh, that were preached on the video. God redeemed his people from slavery to create a people for himself, a people who would be set apart, a people who would be different to the surrounding nations, different to the world around them, a people who would reflect him and his character. And so God sends 10 plagues on the Egyptians. He delivers their firstborns from the angel of death. He saves them from the pursuing Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea. He provides food and water and protection for them in the wilderness. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai where he manifests his presence on the mountain. As we saw last week, this is just extraordinary and utterly terrifying and has as has been the case all along another reality check of how our sin separates us from God Exodus 19:12 as God tells the people what to do take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death The people can't even touch the mountain where God's presence is manifest. But does this cause the people of Israel to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways as it should have? No. While the Lord is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, Aaron leads the people of Israel in the most heartbreaking acts of idolatry and and spiritual adultery. 
He receives their, their gold after they complain and then he makes a golden calf and says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. It would be like a husband committing adultery on the night of his wedding. The scene is so heinous that the Lord is ready to begin again with Moses. But just as God showed grace to Adam and Eve and showed grace to so many others throughout human history, so he relented and did not destroy them. Time and time again, God shows us his grace because that is who he is. That is still who he is today. Friends, we are never too far. Even after committing the most heinous of sins, even when we continue to fall into repeated sin, God is far more gracious than you and I will ever deserve, than you and I will ever be. And he calls us to turn from that sin, to repent of it and to trust in him and to do all that he commands us. After showing mercy to Israel, the Lord then told Moses and the people how they were to be his people, how they were to be set apart from all other people. And a key part of that was the construction of the tabernacle. Kids, does anyone know what the tabernacle is? Yeah? A temple, or very close, very, very close. Sorry? The God bit? Where God will be, that's right, yes, that is, exa- that is correct. The, so the tabernacle, right, one more. Worshipping place. Yeah, all th- that's right. So Elijah, you were actually uh, very close because the tabernacle was a tent where God would be, a place to worship for the people of Israel. And, they, and it would go with them as they traveled through the wilderness. And eventually that would be replaced when they came into the promised land with the temple. So there's a reason why you associated those two things together. So the tabernacle was, was like a really big tent. And where they went... God's manifest presence would enter it to show that he was with his people as they wandered around the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the first half of Exodus is really exciting, right? So much drama. It begins very, uh, you know, with, with heightened tensions straight away. But the second half, it can be far more of a grind, There's so many random laws that are hard for us to understand or relate to, not to mention lots of instructions about measurements and details of how to make the tabernacle something that we don't even have anymore, that we don't have to worry about. But if you read that second half of Exodus and understand that what God is doing through them, well, then they start to just make a little bit more sense. When you see that that the tabernacle, its purpose was to address this very issue of how God's people enter God's presence, it starts to make just a bit more sense. Let me give you just one example. As I mentioned, our deepest need in Genesis 3 is is to be able to enter God's presence again. Or, to put it one way, how do we get back into Eden? And do you remember what, what the end of Genesis 3 said? 
God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden. All right, the way into the Garden of Eden, Eden faced east. Now, which direction do you think the entrance to the tabernacle faced? East. That's right. The, the instructions for the tabernacle were that its entrance was to face east. And what was guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden? Does anyone remember? The cherubim. That's right. Do you know the only other place in the Pentateuch, which is the name we give for the first five books in the Bible, where you will find cherubim? In the tabernacle. There are two cherubim made of gold sitting over the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and then likeness of cherubim is woven into the curtains of the tabernacle. These are just two of the signs that show us that the purpose of the tabernacle was to enable God's people to enter into his presence. The whole purpose of it was so that they could get back to Eden. It is surely one of the most tragic things that so many in Christianity today speak of walking into the presence of God so flippantly. As though you can guarantee God's presence if you have the music and the lighting just right. A conference flyer that I went to a long time ago described the main worship leader as ready to bring you into the throne room of God. Friends, when I speak this morning about the presence of God, I'm not talking about some kind of, of feeling or, or buzz in the atmosphere or some spiritual experience that you might have which, which causes your heart to beat faster and your chest to swell with emotion. Now, we can have another conversation about whether it's okay to talk about that kind of thing as, as the presence of God. But fundamentally, we must understand what God's presence is biblically. And what the Bible teaches us in these books is that God's presence is holy and terrifying for anything that is unholy. If it weren't for Jesus... Believe me, I would not want to be led into the throne room of God by anyone. Do you approach God's presence like that? Christian, do you understand how utterly amazing and incredible it is that you can do so without being struck down dead? This is why so much of Exodus is taken up with instructions about the tabernacle. It represents the way back into God's presence. But we still have a big problem. As we did at the end of Genesis, towards the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verses 34 to 35 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And what? Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting. 
The greatest prophet Israel has ever seen, the one who was able to ascend Mount Sinai into God's presence when everyone else would have died. The one whose face shone after meeting with God. He's not allowed to go in? Well, if he can't, if he's not allowed to go in, how could anyone possibly enter the presence of God? That's why Leviticus is next. That brings us to our second heading. God's solution for Israel. Now, Leviticus is the name of the book. It's an understandable name for the book. Now, kids, can any of you tell me the name of the tribe of Israel that is hidden in the name of the book? Anyone? Yeah? Levi. That's right. The first four letters. The priestly tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. But in some ways, Leviticus is actually not the best name for the book because even though only a Levite could be a priest, that didn't mean that all Levites were priests. And on top of that, a lot of the book of Leviticus is actually not just addressing the priesthood, but all of Israel. And so for that reason, the Hebrew title for this book is actually better. and It's simply the first word of the book. And that is the word, the Hebrew word for call. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it because I don't know Hebrew. The Hebrew word for call. And that is, it's a fitting title as well because this is the only time that the word is used with reference to the Lord calling someone in the whole book. It's the only time the Lord called Moses. And not only that, the vast majority of the book is the Lord speaking to Moses, giving him laws about how the people are to set themselves apart for God. And importantly, these instructions, they paved the way for entry into God's presence, back to Eden. Do you see how when we crack open Leviticus chapter 1 with this perspective, understanding all that has come before it, understanding the problem that needs a solution, it helps us enter into the world of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a challenging read. Who's, who's read it? Yeah. Who found it hard? <laughs> now, obviously, I don't have time to go into all the detail this morning, which is what we're going to spend the next few months doing. And at any rate, I wouldn't be ready to do that anyway. And so I hope that's encouraging to you. I want to encourage us during the week to read and study Leviticus and, and to spend some time thinking about it. I have found it really wonderful and beneficial to find that as I have studied it, it has made more sense to me. And there's still so much more to make sense of. But as, as you understand the bigger picture of what's happening, it, it, the things that are opaque start to become clear. And I would love to hear more about your questions and observations that you have throughout the week as I prepare to preach on it. So to help us get started, let's consider the big sections of the book and how they give us God's solution for the big problem for the people of Israel. Now, there are several ways that you can divide up the book of Leviticus, but this morning I'm going to give you just the obvious breakdowns uh, of the various chapters. 
So as you see there on the screen, chapters 1 to 7 are laws about offerings. Chapters 8 and 9 are laws for the ordination of the priests. Chapter 10 is, uh, as we read before, a story about unauthorized fire. Chapters 11 to 15 are laws about being clean and unclean. Chapter 16 is about the Day of Atonement. And chapters 17 to 27 are laws, further laws for God's people. So uh, we'll, we'll run through those this morning. Firstly, laws about offerings. Now, as, as I said, Leviticus, it's not one of those books that gets you into the action right away, right? Unlike Exodus, there's, there's drama in Pharaoh and in Egypt and the people are multiplying and, whoa, it's tense. No, no, uh, Leviticus is, is more of a slow burn, right? It, 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 it's, 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 it takes a while to get going. Which means that in the first seven chapters of the book, uh, you have these like, pretty dry, detailed explanations of different kinds of offerings. Now, most of the times for me in my life, when I resolved to read Leviticus, uh, almost every time I bombed out in the first seven chapters. But as I said, if you, if you know, if you, if you go in knowing what to expect, then it can help you endure and if you want a summary of what's happening in the first seven chapters, then look no further than verses 37 and 38 of chapter 7. This tells us exactly everything that has come before. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the peace offering. That is what you see in the first seven chapters, descriptions of how those things work out, how you do them. Now, as detailed as these laws are, see, we read this and we think, man, so much detail. Well, it's worth noting that Leviticus doesn't primarily serve that function. This book is not primarily a handbook or a, or a law code pre preserved for generations to come. If, if it was, you wouldn't have these random bits of, of narrative that, that we see in the different sections. So it's, it's worth recognizing that as we read this, there are things that the Israelites would have understood and recognized that we just don't because we're so far removed from it. There are assumptions that Moses is making that his hearers understand that we just don't. Think of it like this. If someone in a few thousand years dug up, managed to find a recording of a phone conversation between two friends and, it, and there was only a small snippet of that conversation and what they caught was... Did you see the Matildas game the other night? Man, talk about heartbreaking. Right? Almost everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about when I say that. But you can imagine how somebody in a few thousand years in a completely different place with no context, they would have no idea what I'm talking about. And so it is with us as we approach this book. And thankfully, we have lots of information that we can access to help us understand it. So we ought to make the most of that when we meditate on the book, to seek to understand of it, to seek to enter the world of Moses and Israel. And one of the things we can do as we consider that, especially when it comes to these offerings, is, is considering, for example, uh, the, the animals themselves. For us today... Animals are, at least for most of us, they are pets or they are attractions at the Darwin Show. But for these Israelites who were roaming the wilderness, who were a, a farming people, having just escaped slavery in Egypt, this is their livelihood. 
You know, we don't think much about sacrificing an ox or, or a lamb or a goat or whatever it might be. But this is the, their very income, their means of being able to support their families to live. And that's why you see in the book sometimes that if somebody can't afford a lamb or something else, well, there were cheaper options for them to offer something else. And that would still achieve the same thing. And of course, perhaps the thing we miss the most as we read through these first seven chapters is the fact that these offerings were given by God to the people as a way of dealing with sin. Now, the various offerings, they serve different purposes, which we'll get into. But just, just imagine, imagine the sensory overload of these offerings. Here you have struggling animals, perhaps making all sorts of noises, braying and baying, whatever the word is. And then they, they're brought forth to the tent of meeting and they're slaughtered by the priests. Blood is being spilled everywhere on the altar, splashing on the priest's robes. There's pools of blood flowing on the ground. Animals are being flayed, which means that their skin is being removed and their flesh is being cut up in pieces and then they're being burned up entirely. Can you imagine the, the, the sensory overload of this experience? The closest thing I've ever gotten to is watching my father-in-law carve up a deer that he's just killed. He didn't burn it up. The sight, the sound, the smell of all of this happening regularly at the tabernacle, which was in the center of the camp, with people bringing the best of what they owned, bringing a, a lamb or a goat or an ox or, or something with no blemish, having to pick the, your prized animal out of your flock. All of that would have been a significant, solemn, and serious reminder of their sin. This is what it costs. Now, we don't do this kind of thing anymore for good reason, which I'll get into later. I'm glad I don't really like the smell of blood and animal parts. But how can we today, as followers of Christ, on this side of Christ's coming, capture that same significance and solemnity that our sin ought to cause us to reflect on? One way, certainly would be to spend an intentional amount of time during our devotion and our prayer thinking about and confessing our sin. Does it grieve us? Does it humble us? Do we appreciate the cost of it? Do you? Or have we gotten comfortable with it? Do we let our sin make itself home in our hearts and lays away on its couches? 
I heard once about a pastor who, for his birthday, asked his friends to come and instead of giving him a present, to think of a way that he had sinned against them. And then at the party, he confessed that and he sought their forgiveness. Now, he's a bit of a socially awkward guy and I can't imagine myself doing something like that. But do we scoff and mock him in our heart because he's awkward? Or can we see and appreciate that he probably takes his sin more seriously than most of us? And in the way that God would have us. That is what these offerings in the first seven chapters of Leviticus are meant to highlight. Often people think of Leviticus as just a book of laws with no grace. And there's plenty of grace, which we'll see more of soon. And these offerings, they set us up to hear that. When grace comes, these magnify the very reasons why we need it. In chapters 8 and 9, we see the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests for this work. Now, these priests were the ones who carried out most of these offerings uh, that we read about. As I mentioned earlier, they were set apart from the tribe of Levi and they played a very significant role. And on the Day of Atonement especially, the high priest was the one who entered the Holy of Holies. And so because of this uh, significance, because of the significance of their role, it is so important for them to make sure they do their job the way God told them to. And that brings us to the tragedy and the warning of chapter 10. Two sons of Levi, Levi named Nadab and Abihu offer unauthorized or in some translations strange fire which means an offering of worship that God did not tell them to give. And as a result, fire from the Lord consumed them and they died. Now this served as a warning for the people. The tabernacle represented an incredible privilege a marvelous grace given by God to provide a way for his people to once again enter his presence. But just as the fire and smoke of Mount Sinai were a terrible and terrifying sight, so the most holy place was to be considered also. God is holy. And whether or not you agree with John MacArthur's conclusions in his book and conference, Strange Fire, all Christians can and, and ought to agree that we should worship God as he has commanded us. That we should not try to be novel. That we should not try to come up with innovative and interesting ways that God has not told us about how we ought to worship him. This is not something to be trifled with. We are not to be cavalier in our approach to God. 
And brothers and sisters, as Romans 12.1 tells us, your life is to be offered up as a living sacrifice to God. So we must offer them up, them up according to what God has said. Let the Word of God guide you in how you should live the Christian life. Don't do what our culture does and just go with what feels right. Seek counsel. Speak to brothers and sisters in Christ about how we ought to offer up our lives to God as a living sacrifice. How we ought to obey and, and, uh, and trust in Him and be faithful to Him. Now that is our prayer as a church, that we would live as individuals and as God's people together in a way that is faithful to what God has revealed and commanded. This incident in chapter 10 served as a warning to the people of Israel. You cannot enter the presence of a holy God unless it is on his terms. After this, we find in chapters 11 to 15, uh, various laws about uh, clean and unclean animals, purification after childbirth, laws about leprosy and bodily discharges and a whole bunch of other fun things. Now, often people read these and they think, well, actually, these laws were put in place for health reasons. You know, this was God's way of looking after the people. You remove the leper from the camp and then nobody else gets it and that kind of thing. And sure, there might be some of that. But the purpose of these laws was once again to highlight the separation between holy and unholy. That's what we see in the emphasis of separating clean from unclean. Now, even though being ceremonially clean or even though having eating clean meats versus unclean meats, that's not the same thing as being holy or unholy. It demonstrated how all of life was to be brought into submission to God. How even what people ate, how what they touched could cause them to be unclean. Now these chapters show us how all of life for the Israelites was to be devoted entirely to the Lord. The physical pointed to the spiritual, the outward pointed to the inward. And as we read through these laws, the question arises, is there any way that this trend can be reversed? Are Israel doomed to only become unclean when they come into contact with unclean things? Is there any way of coming into contact with something clean and being made clean? And so we arrive at the heart of the book, chapter 16. It is widely acknowledged that this chapter is the central, most important chapter in the book of Leviticus and even of the Pentateuch itself. The Day of Atonement. And it's significant because this is where the deepest need is met. Once a year, after carefully carrying out the required offerings for the priests, the tabernacle and the people, the high priest would enter the most holy place. The sins of the people were atoned for, meaning they were paid for and forgiven. They could be set apart as God's people. 
and this scapegoat. One of two goats that were offered on the Day of Atonement would have the sins of the people confessed over it and it would be sent into the wilderness. Again, we'll look at this in more detail when we get to it. But the most important thing to recognize is that this day, this chapter, is the climax of the book of Leviticus. It is the high point demonstrating and displaying and showing God's mercy on his people. This is how they would enter his presence. And finally, in the last 11 chapters of the book, we have more laws. With the Day of Atonement now having been described and laid out, the Lord gives Moses more instructions about holy living to the Israelites. Now, these cover a range of topics uh, from feast days and other events on the Israelite calendar to more laws about offerings and the priesthood and the tabernacle and all that kind of thing. Yeah, if, you didn't, if you didn't bomb out in chapters 1 to 7, you're probably going to bomb out, bomb out in chapters 11 to 27. That's whatever it is, <laughs> 17 to 27. But these, but these chapters, they contain more laws that concern holy living. There is, there is something of a shift from the more ceremonial in the first half towards the em- emphasis on the more moral. And that's because, as we've seen all along, God is not merely concerned with his people being clean. He's not a germaphobe. He wants them to be fully set apart for him from the inside out. From the, from the flowing from the heart, he wants their actions to come. That's why he says in Leviticus 19, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's his desire for his people. They are to be holy, holy, as in holy, W-H, Fully holy. They are to be holy, holy. And in so doing, they would show the world what the Lord is like. They would be a blessing to the nations. They would fulfill that promise that God gave to Abraham. They would show the world how they can get back to the garden. There's only one problem, though. The need isn't properly met yet. Offerings have to be given once a year still. It is ongoing. And as we've seen, the Israelites don't actually follow this. And not only that, Hebrews 10 tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Levitical system and the old covenant, it anticipated a better one. See, We need a better covenant, a better system, a better sacrifice, a better priest. And that brings us to the third and final heading, God's solution for us. 
the promise to Abraham, Moses on Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the offerings, the day of atonement, the laws, they all foreshadowed the one to come. The one who would crush the serpent's head. The seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all nations. The Holy One who would descend from heaven only to ascend the hill at Calvary and offer himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all. Our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross to atone for our sin. This, friends, is the climax of God's story. His grace writ large on all human history and all hum- for all humanity everywhere to see. He is the head crusher, the perfect sacrifice, the great high priest. What happened when Jesus died? When he said, it is finished. Listen to Mark 15, verses 37 to 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple, as I mentioned earlier, replaced the tabernacle. But its layout was the same with an outer courtyard, a holy place, and a most holy place. And that curtain also had cherubim on it. When Jesus was offered as the sacrificial lamb on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. You know what that means, right? You understand what that represents? The way back into the presence of God is open. And it's not just open to ethnic Israelites. It's not just open to those who who do the the ceremonies of the blood and the bulls and the goats and, and the offerings. In fact, look at the very next verse and the response that Mark records after Jesus' death in verse 39. And when the centurion, a Roman centurion, not a Jew, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The good news of God's word is that we may now all, no matter where we're from, no matter what language we speak, no matter what the sins of our past are, may, through repentance of sin and trust in Jesus, enter into God's presence. Our great high priest has entered the most holy place by his own holiness, bearing our sin upon himself so that we might receive his righteousness and follow him in. And friends, this is not just good news for today, but good news for eternity. For there comes a day when Jesus will descend once more. One final time. When heaven and earth will be made new and it won't be a garden that we'll be returning to, 
that we'll be in the same Edenic kind of state, but it will be a holy city. And those who have put their trust in Jesus will have their names written in the Lamb's book, but those who reject him will be cast out. Finally, eternally, completely, forever. Hear God's word from Revelation chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our deepest need is to be able to stand in God's presence and be counted clean. Will you trust in our great high priest to enter his presence? Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by your word. Humbled by the reminder of how devastating our sin is. Humbled by the fact that we continue to and constantly fail. We constantly grow comfortable with our sin and we fail to appreciate the cost the ultimate cost that it would cost your son so father as we reflect on your holiness and your great mercy may we respond to you in full dependence, holding fast to Jesus, to your mercy, and living in praise and joy for the great salvation that you have shown to us. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.